welcome everyone to Small Talk. Uh, we greatly appreciate you tuning in tonight and to our uh, our live conversation here on Facebook, like we do every Tuesday and Thursday at 8 p.m. And uh, I would love it if you would share. You know, I've been saying this the last couple of podcasts. If you just go right onto your your phone, I just did it myself and shared the Small Talk feed here of this live show on my own personal page. And uh, that always helps us get some views. Um, we, we really do think that we're having a valuable conversation uh, around race and, and what's happening in our world. And, you know, we don't always want to just talk about race, but it, it is obviously saturating our culture right now. And we think that we're having some productive conversations uh, about it here, some honest conversations. So, um, Reggie, uh, Reggie did not lose all of his pigment. That is uh, Chris Mullen. Chris has been away for a while, but but uh, Chris, I think we're on like episode uh, twenty now, I believe. Yeah. And so you were on some earlier podcasts, and you've been away for a little bit. Glad to see you back, Reggie. Glad to be back. Uh, Reggie is working, working, working. He and I have both been working, doing training classes and whatnot online. And he, he's going to join us as soon as he can tonight. Now, um, if you are uh, someone who has loyally listened, then you might remember that Chris is a small business owner. Chris, um, his uh, business was greatly impacted by COVID-19 because Chris um, manages, coordinates, facilitates uh, uh, races, right? Uh, running events and 5Ks, this sort of thing. A lot of like every charity run that's in our community, Chris Mulling, DRC Sports is there making that happen. And uh, and Chris also does training uh, like Reggie and I do. He, he does training and public speaking. Chris, you've done motivational speaking. Uh, you've worked in law enforcement. Yep. Uh, you're a, you're a, a private pilot. We need to go fly again soon. Exactly. Uh, Renaissance man. And when I think about how many different jobs you've had and the things you've done, uh, I must assume that you're about 127 years old because I don't know how uh, you could have done all of those things. Uh, maybe you're just non-committal, man. Maybe just never. <laughs> well, my girlfriend can tell you that's true. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's actually what's what's happened here. So listen, man. Uh, while we're waiting on Reggie, okay. I, I want to hear your perspective right now, as someone who used to work in law enforcement, does not now. I want to hear your take on what you're seeing out there uh, right now. Let me, let me give you a little background uh, of where I come from. So it all started in, in the early 70s when I went to an all-black school. When I was growing up and I was in um, kindergarten and first grade, I attended Palmetto Elementary School in Clearwater. It was on the other side of the tracks. It was a certain area, but because of desegregation at the time, in the late 60s, early 70s, they had they had made certain squares on the city map and said, well, we're going to take this area and make them go over here. And then this area goes over here to cause the, the, the crossing. So we were a token white group of people, five of us. There were only five white kids in this entire school. Um, and I can tell you from without going into great depth that I felt racism every single day that I can tell you that what I learned in that experience was that any group when in a majority exercises the authority that they have by being the majority and they and they do tend to pick on those people who are different 
And, and we, the five of us, um, we were a very close knit group because we had to be, we felt like we had to stay together in order to, for our own safety, because we were picked on, on, on dramatically. And, and I, when I left that school and came up here to Citrus County, um, it was, it was a big culture shock because it was a country environment and, and the, the, um, the, the ratios of, of, of ethnicity flipped 100%. And, um, and it was a different environment. Um, but I never forgot about being that guy. Even, even as a high school senior, I, I was always the, the, the guy, and it wasn't just ethnic, it wasn't just black. It was people that picked on other people. I hated it. Because it happened so early in my childhood, and I, and I felt that being isolated and picked on for no other reason than I was different. I, I became a protector of those people. And I would fight at the drop of a hat all through high school for somebody else who was picked on. I would step in and, and do that. I got in trouble a lot for that. Um, but what it did is it kind of molded me as a person to always have that other perspective to say, you know, and to understand that when people say there's systemic racism against, say, blacks, um, I, I don't disagree if it's an, a, a largely white area that they're operating in. But understand that they don't operate any differently when they're in the majority based on my experience. And so that just makes us all people. We're all human. We don't, you, you can't systemically or, or collectively judge a group by its color. Um, although there are certain traits that people, humans, I think, whether you're black, white, Asian, doesn't matter, will exercise when given the opportunity of having the majority of people standing behind you. It emboldens people uh, to act in certain ways that, it, that are inappropriate. And, and so I've seen both sides of that growing up. Uh, when I moved here in Citrus County, it was a country and, and, and I, I could see a lot of, you know, racism, exactly what I experienced happening to the very few black kids that were in school, you know, when, when I, when I came here, because it was largely white and, and, and I, and I just didn't, didn't, didn't like it. I didn't like it because I knew exactly how those kids felt. Um, but I, after growing up, I looked at it and say, you know what, but, but what it taught me was, is that black people are no different than white people. And I believe that I believe that our values, our, our wants, we have cultural differences, but as human beings, we exhibit a lot of the same traits and a lot of the same behaviors. It's just a matter of opportunity. Do we have the opportunity to, to exhibit that? You know, do we have the, the ability to exhibit that? Um, if we're backed up by 300 people, yeah, we're, we're very emboldened and we'll, we'll be that person. But when we're sitting in a super minority of only five against 300, we are a completely different role. And that's how we operate. So that's step one, law enforcement. Fast forward now, um, spent 10 years uh, with the sheriff's office. And um, in that time, I became a deputy sheriff. I was, I was mainly in dispatch in 911 and worked with the computer systems and stuff like that. I was mostly administrative, but I did spend a small time on the road. I was, I was a deputy sheriff. I became an EMT firefighter, did, did a lot of things um, that the department afforded me the ability. I took all kinds of training and I, I became certified virtually everything I could. Um, but in there, um, I met some great people. I saw some, um, things that I didn't agree with that I think are indicative of what we're seeing today. And, and let me touch on that. What happened to George Floyd and, and, and I don't, I don't know what happened prior to, 
there may have been some racism that that caused that scenario to start to unfold or to execute. But from my experience in discussing it with the friends that I have that are law enforcement officers, black and white, um, when you're affecting an arrest, you're so focused. It's so narrow. You can't even imagine the, the, your, your blood pressure is super high. Your, your heart rate is racing anytime, because when you go to an effect arrest, you never know what this guy's got. You, you never know if you're going to get your butt kicked or if you're going to be able to do, use all the techniques that you've been taught and control this person. And it can flip like that. So there's always this apprehension. You become so laser focused on the arrest. It doesn't matter whether it's a black person, a white person, um, a female or a male, you lose track. And that's why we see videos of them. You know, you see these arrests against a 78 year old person or a guy dragging an 80 year old out of a car and pulling him onto the ground. Because when they go into arrest mode, it's, it's no long, they, they lose track of all of those ancillary things that are easy to see when you stand over here. It's me against you. I'm affecting the arrest. And once I make the decision and, and the training officers get is to never back up, to continue to move forward. So if I, if I, once I make the decision, I'm arresting you, I'm not going to, you can't talk me out of it. You're under arrest. Now we have to move forward. And if you start to resist, now I have to escalate and we continue to move through that process. And I'm already expecting it to go bad so that I protect myself. I don't get caught off guard. So I don't know if, if, if it's, you know, a fair to, to look at something from a, a outside and say, oh, well, he's, he's, but he puts his knee on the guy's neck because he's black. If you ask me, that is that officer's go-to officers over the period of time, they, they develop patterns, they develop um, techniques. Uh, I've seen people use vascular chokehold, you know, as a go-to, they get the guy around the neck and they try to choke him out not to choke him out, but to control the, the blood flow to his brain, which makes him pass out and it becomes limp, and then they can control it. That's not something we teach. But if an officer uses that and it works, they'll use it again and again and again and again. If this officer used his foot or knee to control an individual on their neck and it's worked for him, he'll continue to go to that. That'll be a go-to maneuver for him even though it may not be appropriate. It may not be. And, and if we ask that officer, I'll guarantee you, he would, he would swear to you, he wasn't doing it for more than a couple of minutes. We also, we also know that when everything gets, you know, you're amped up and everything goes, time is just racing. And so he would probably swear that it was just a few minutes. He would never be able to understand that it was eight and a half minutes or whatever it was. And I'm just trying to put you in the mentality of an officer affecting an arrest and, and what goes through their, their, their mind and how they do that. And, and if they're a racist, that comes into play when they might select that person to interview or stop them or talk to them. But when it comes time to arrest somebody, it doesn't matter. That, that, there's no, I've never seen it. I've never seen them be more aggressive towards a black person than they would a white person once they decide to arrest them. It, and, and what I think we saw with George Floyd was an officer that had a history of excessive force, which wasn't identified or wasn't dealt with, that had a go-to maneuver that had the potential for, for dire circumstances with a, with a, on, the, on the neck. Understand, we're taught that wherever the head goes, the body will follow. So that control technique in, in, in contr body control, you can, you can try to control somebody with risk control, right? 
You can, can grab their wrist and try to force them over. You can use pressure point. There's several different methods and te techniques, but, but one of those is head control. And when you do that, and if you get them on the ground and you place a knee or a foot on their neck, they can't get up. And they know that. And like I said, this officer probably developed this over a period of years and it became a go-to method for him. Except that when it was determined to be excessive force time and time again, nobody did anything about it. The secondary part of this equation that was a problem, in my opinion, was the de-escalation didn't occur. Once officer number two and three and four arrive on the scene, there's no, it, it's obvious from a video, there's no more necessity for this level of control. The guy only has four limbs. Why are we using a net control technique when there's enough officers there to control every limb and keep this guy, you know, and do it? The one officer that had only been on the force a very short period of time even suggested twice. Four days, I believe. Yeah, four days. Suggested twice that they roll him over. But of course, you can't, in the, in the peer pressure environment that he was in with four days seniority, he might suggest it, but nobody's listening to him. And he certainly can't insist on it because if he said, if he yelled at that officer and said, hey, get off him, blah, 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 he's signing his own death warrant within the department. He'll be labeled and ostracized and nobody will work with him and he'll have problems when he needs backup. All that will happen. That subculture is there. Officers are bred to look at people as an us against them. And that's not the way we want to believe that it happens. We want to believe that they, everybody's, you know, officer friendly and citizens are given the benefit of the doubt. But the truth is that officers spend much of their time um, concerned. I don't want to say afraid because officers will push back. I'm not afraid. But the truth is, is that if you're in a, if you're in a dark environment and you're by yourself and you don't know what's happening, it's, it's unnerving. If you have to enter a home, you have no idea what's waiting for you around the corner. Your, your, your heart rate is at 150 beats per minute. You know, and, 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 and if it's not, why are you, are, are you, you know, are you not aware or are you super trained where you, you, you've got a control of the situation? So we, we look at a situation like these officers that get all ramped up and escalated. And, and why don't we have a method in place that allows for the de-escalation? And it's just because of, of, of the officer's are a unit within themselves and they say, we're the good guys, everybody else is a bad guy unless proven otherwise. If they encounter you on a dark street, walking down the street, they're not gonna assume that you're a good guy. They're gonna assume that you're a bad guy until you talk to them, they assert that you have no weapons, you're not crazy, you're not drunk, you're not aggressive. And once they've identified all these things and checked off all the boxes, then they'll lower their guard to have a conversation with you. But it's a death sentence for them to walk down the street and engage somebody in a dark alley and go, hey, man, how you doing? All loosey-goosey. Because if that person does mean to do them harm, they're completely unprepared and they will be dead or, or severely injured. So they, they put themselves in a position of, of protection by ramping up and, and in many cases overreacting. Um, until they they realize the person is no longer a threat. So 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 here here's where uh, that that guy officer Chauvin uh, I think <laughs> his name this this guy was still on George Floyd's neck for 
nearly three minutes, I believe, after an EMT came up and determined that the guy has no pulse, right? And so uh, I just, I don't know. I've, I've not been a uh, police officer. It's it's very hard for me. I think it's hard for anybody there's not an officer that would defend what he did. Even oh, I would explain it. What, what's happening yeah. is, is this guy has a pattern of use of force, excessive, excessive force. Um, he placed his, his knee on his neck. He doesn't, he doesn't even realize what he's doing or how, how far it's going. And I'm not making an excuse for him, but I'm trying to, if you get in the psychology of where he's at, um, you know, I, I mean, there's other cases we've looked at where they, you know, the person is, uh, they, they made a joke about a guy sleeping, the, a guy that they, they, they put down, they held him down. He couldn't breathe. They were on his back. Um, he stopped breathing and they said, oh, he finally fell asleep and they let him and he died. Hmm. They, you know, and then officers, but, but you can hear them on their cameras joking for minutes afterwards that he's sleeping yet. Nobody went and checked his pulse. Nobody went and checked him until later when they went to move him and they realized, uh Oh, and then the EMS was there and all that stuff. So there, there's, there's plenty of cases like this. Um, but, and that was a white guy that they killed, <laughs> but that's why nobody's protesting about that. And you haven't seen the video of it probably because it wasn't a white on black, right? It doesn't fit the narrative. Well, or, or there was just no video that, that exists. You know, I was, I was just at a community meeting and, and uh, there was some talk about, well, do our officers here in our county, our sheriff's deputies, do they have body cams? And they don't. No. And so there's this talk about, well, we're going to we're going to find a way to find the money to make sure that they all get those. Um, and there's this there seems to be like this idea that, well, maybe if they have those body cameras, maybe this type of thing won't happen. And. I think that that's a very dubious claim because, I mean, in this case, there were people taking video. They were holding their phones and everything else, right? And and there's, I believe there's body cams mm -hmm. uh, in in uh, you know the, in in Minnesota there in Minneapolis. So so it's not an it's not necessarily in my mind deterrent, but it's more of an accountability thing because I have to think that there's plenty of cases where. Uh, law enforcement officers have acted in such a way where uh, they caused the death of somebody and it just wasn't captured on any type of video. And so there was no, there was no awareness. Now I am not somebody that's out here going to make this claim that, you know, this is happening every single day in America. No, it's not. I'm sorry. The data does not show that Reggie likes to give me grief because I'm such a hard data guy, but uh, date, I got a word that's synonymous with data. You ready? So it's yeah. another four-letter word. It starts with an F. Facts. Facts. It's math. I've got this one, and I've got this one. How many do I have? Two of them. It doesn't matter how I feel about that. You know, I want five. It doesn't matter. I've still got two. That's called math. And so the data is what it is. Now we can we can debate whether the data is accurate or not. I'm up for that debate. Um, and but but Chris, even even when it comes to making decisions based on facts, I was thinking about this today. We don't trust. We are such at a we're at a deficit of trust to the 
point that we can't agree on what the, the data is, or what the facts are. Oh, you got those facts from CNN. Oh, turn, hey, I, no, that's not true. You got that from Fox. No, that, that's not true either. We're at the point where we just don't, we don't believe anything. Well, part of, part of the, the um, social media you know, generation is the propagation of inaccurate data. I saw a post from a, a buddy of mine, his daughter posted something about Donald Trump and it was all this just completely ridiculous stuff. And she's putting it out there like, oh, see this uh, and, you know, and all this factual stuff. And it's not, it's completely made up. There's no factual basis behind it. Right after that, I see another post from a different friend of mine with some a statistical uh, sheet, and I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay, that 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 matches what my narrative is. That's my confirmation bias. Is like I like this, and then it says the reference, and it says, oh, I freaking get what it said. Maybe I'll run and get it for you, but can I give me ten seconds, okay? All right, take your take your ten uh, seconds. Yeah. And uh, you know, while while Chris is doing that. You know, it also reminds me of uh, the meme that was making a making the rounds on Facebook that had a uh, picture of Hitler holding a Bible and had a picture of Trump holding a Bible at his um, his photo op that he did in front of the church there. Uh, I guess probably right there on Pennsylvania Avenue, and and it was a photoshopped picture of of Hitler. Right. Did you hear Hitler. that, Chris? And yep. So now that makes the rounds, right? And why why do we have to do that? So here's here's can't we just can't we all just come out and say, hey Trump, that was the dumbest photo op ever, totally unnecessary, that was stupid, you shouldn't have done that, and then let's just move on, right? Let's move well, on. No need to Trump. Trump is no stranger to making bad decisions when it comes well, to stuff like that, but it's it's like anything else. It's the totality of of his actions. It's like, okay, for for every mis misstep that he makes, how much how much good is he doing? You know, it, where's the balance here? They tend to they tend to accentuate every negative, and then downplay every positive or ignore it completely, and that's not fair. But this is this is what I'm a reference to. So I don't know if you can see it pretty good, but I saw this graphic came up, and it talks about interracial violent crimes incidents in 2018 and it shows this represents uh, white on black and, and look at the, the the difference between that versus say black on white over here on the blue so and i'm like oh man that the number of incidents so then i look at the bottom for the reference and it says bureau of justice statistics i'm like that sounds like bs <laughs> bureau of justice that sounds so generic so I did some, it says National Crime Victimization Survey 2018, Table 14. So I did my research. Here it is. Here's the entire statistical um, report from the Department of Justice. You can go right down to. Yeah, I think Reggie actually sent that to me. Reggie, I think, sent that to me. Right. So maybe and, and go to Table 14. Now it's not in, now somebody made this, you know, this bar graph, but they'd use the numbers out of this, a real true report. I want to know that because because right after that, I see this. I see uh, uh, one of these that says, oh, you know, some 20, 2015 crime statistics, blacks killed by whites, 2%, blacks killed by police, 1%, blah, 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 blacks killed by blacks, 97%. Okay. And I'm like, wow, 
Now that's very similar to the other one, you know, and I'm like, okay, well then what's the reference for this? And I try to find it. Well, guess what? It's BS. I find somebody made the a counter graphic that says, here's the real statistics. And so they put the real ones down, the accurate ones down. And, and this is the problem with social media. There's too much of <laughs> this out there that yeah. nobody takes the time to research. Nobody well, does. I do that research, and then Reg, Reggie gives me hell about it when I say, hey, man, these are not – he doesn't give me hell about it, but he, he just reminds me that I'm just a, a, a data-driven type guy, which I'll tell you what, man, uh, Monday through Friday from uh, 9 to 5 – actually, it's a lot longer hours than that, Reggie, right? Uh, that data-driven stuff serves us pretty well. That, that's how we have to make our decisions, you know, uh, but – you know, I, I'm just not one to just emote all day. Like I want to know, I want to make some decisions based on what's, what's the data, but I'm willing to argue and, and, or not argue, but I'm willing to open my mind to say, Hey, that data may not be right. I'm, I'm willing to do that. I'm also very willing to say, I don't care about data. If it hits my house, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I get that. I'm willing to do that. And I think that if we're going to have honest conversations, then I think we have to be able to sort of have a little self-awareness about all this. Because I can empathize. You know, you, you guys heard me railing about you close down the whole county because you have eight one hundred thousandths of one percent chance of dying of, of something. You shut down everything. Okay, I don't like that. I think that's nonsense and all the rest of it. But, hey, look, if my father died from it, I'd probably take a different viewpoint. I know that. I know it. Well, I'm, I'm here. A, I get it. There's always a, 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 you know, they say, well, if we, if all this can save one person, then it's worth it. I don't agree with that statement because you can't ruin the lives of thousands of people for for the benefit of one it's just not the way our society works it's just not the way it works we if we went on that mantra if we followed that for every you know everything is designed to prevent one person from being you know hurt or die or whatever everything is designed around that we wouldn't be able to breathe we wouldn't be able to move we would we would be so restricted because because there's too many opportunities for you know somebody to get hurt or do something wrong or make a mistake or make a bad decision that's part of life. That's part of us living. And we have consequences for those things in place. But but if we're trying to prevent them from happening, I think we're really going to find ourselves in a situation where you can't, that's a utopian in view and you can't, you can't prevent everything from happening. If you do, you're, you're, you're going to have other ramifications. Hey, Chris, I just did a thing last week, man. I bought a Harley. Did you really? I bought a Harley and, uh, yeah, why are you shaking your head, man? Well, I like oil leaks and stuff. Go ahead. No, why are you shaking your head? What's going on? I, I'm a, I'm not a Harley guy. I'm a. What, what's wrong? What's wrong with what's wrong with those motorcycles? I could what? Die, right? No, I have a motorcycle. I'm all over motorcycles. I own, I own a motorcycle. No, but, that, but that's the that that is uh that's probably what will keep my father up at night. You know? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, man. My dad. Let me tell you something. Uh, you I know, love, you I love motorcycles. I'm not just, I'm not a Harley fan. Hey, let me tell you, let me tell you something about my father. Okay. Let me just say that when he, uh, when he leaves this world, I will not be standing at the casket looking at him saying, 
I just, I don't know if he loved me or not, dude. I, I'm the apple of that dude's eye. Okay, you, t- okay. I'm here to, I'm here to tell you. And uh, I think he probably uh, lights up to some degree when he talks about me and thinks of me like Reggie does when he thinks about uh, Jake. You know, so and, and I do with my kids. So he, he's probably going to have some sleepless nights knowing that I've got that Harley. That, that's for sure. But yeah, you fly airplanes, right? There's a risk there, right? There's a risk in. In all of this, uh, but you can't. You're not going to say to me, "Hey, man, what's the chances of you getting ran over by somebody?" You're going to you, man. You could die on that thing. I, I don't care. I'm, oh, I, I, I got to know what, what's the topic because I, I, I apologize for coming in late. <laughs> well, so, <clears throat> hey, man, welcome. I'm glad you're here, and uh, I appreciate uh, what's up, people that are chiming in here. Glenn is here, of course, as always. I uh, love that, and. Uh, and Greg and Jackie and Chris, uh, appreciate you all showing up. Um, yeah, and Greg made a point here as well. This is a good good point. Oftentimes, the body cameras or cell phone videos exonerate an officer as well. It go it goes both ways. I really like the idea of body cameras just so that we can have the facts afterwards and and, and know what know what happened. I don't think that's going to happen in our community though. It's it's just a Heck of a lot of money, and the county commission is going to have to do that. Don't don't rail against the sheriff. He's not the one that's that's you know he gets his money from the county. I mean that's a that's how I understand. It. But at any rate, uh, Reggie, in your absence, uh, I found another bald guy, a little few shades lighter than you, and uh, Chris is joining us tonight. I love it too, man, because he uh, he hit me up while I was killing a bowl of Lucky Charms before I got on here. He's like, hey, man. I'm ready to get on here tonight, so I'm glad he's here. So Chris uh, has some law enforcement background, and I thought I would ask him what he thought about what he's what he's watching. Oh, the disbanding and the defunding. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, we didn't we didn't really get to the def. Um, he was trying to give us some insight into what it's like in the moment as an officer who's kind of in that use of force uh, mode of being. And, and I can relate to that to some degree, Chris, certainly working in a, the correctional system. Man, I know what it's like to go extract somebody out of, a, out of a cell or just someone squares up with you mm-hmm. and you, you just you got, you got to do what you got to do to wrestle that person to the ground and, and, and detain them, neutralize whatever threat that's going on. And I'll tell you what, for me, many times that did not look like textbook because you're in a brawl you're you're in freaking hand-to-hand combat uh, so that that has certainly that's happened to me quite a few times and i i get it that adrenaline's kicking that heart race is kicking so um all right so uh chris the other thing and uh, we're at 34 minutes already man you jokers are long-winded man i asked Reggie to share a story something the other day, man, like six minutes later, I'm like, man, Reggie, get to the point. I can't cut him off or anything because then I get accused of talking over people. You do. You know you do. Stop playing. All right. So, <laughs> so Chris, um, you were on, on an early episode, and then when we shut this thing off, we kept on talking like we do all the time. Reggie and I talked for another 30 minutes the other night when we turned this thing off. And uh, it was interesting to me, as well as I know you, I didn't know this. You said to me, hey, there's some things I could have contributed there, but I didn't because you said that you were in a interracial relationship for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So having that experience, do you think that affects the way that you look at the conversation that's being had in our country at this point? Does that you, you and Reggie have that in common. I mean, Reggie's in a interracial marriage. Um, so what, what do you think? How has that affected the way you look at the, all this? Um, well, I'll tell you, you know, I, I never, it, it never was, I always joked with, with my girlfriend that I didn't like black girls. I didn't like black women. I didn't find them attractive, you know, <laughs> but, but here I was in this relationship with her. Um, she was a beautiful girl and, and we were actually together on uh, nine years. So a long time, but, um, and probably the only reason we split up is she wanted to have children. She wanted to have kids and I didn't, you know, I'd, I'd reached a point in my life. I was too old. I didn't want to start having a family at that age. And she was ready to do that. So, so, you know, we, we parted ways on that. Now, politically, we were as far apart as you can get. The, the, the racial thing was, was almost nothing compared to the political diversity of our relationship. Um, but the great thing about that was we were able, because we had a relationship, we were able to have in-depth conversations. And so for, for her to say, we don't know what it's like to be black. I, I would, you know, come right back and say, well, you don't know what it's like to be white. You know, you, you have no, you don't, you don't have an, a, you can't tell me what it was like to be me growing up. You know, you can only speak of your personal experience and coming from that scenario. Um, but, but I saw, I mean, as I, as I mentioned to you before we turned the thing, I lost friends over this, over that deal. When I, I would be invited to a party and I would bring her with me. And uh, I saw the reaction on certain friends' faces and things. And then- So can I, wait, can I clarify, you lost uh, white friends who did not approve of you being in a relationship, committed relationship that, like that. And that's my assumption based on the fact that um, I wasn't invited back to those parties. I wasn't included in things. Things I had been included up until that point, I was no longer included. Um, there was never anything said specifically, never anything done specifically to me. It was just a, a lack of inclusion um, of me. And then, and, 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 and that became very apparent. You know, it's like people that I would talk to that just wouldn't talk to me anymore. Or I didn't, didn't run into them. If I did see them at the grocery store, it would be very quick. Like, Hey, what's up? Like, oh, nice. Da, 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 and, and very move, move on. Um, so I'm like, okay. And I, and I made an assumption that, you know, it was because of the relationship because they didn't approve of it or whatever. Um, but I didn't care because I, I loved her and she was a great person. And, and uh, the crazy thing that I learned from that relationship was um, that when you care about somebody, it doesn't matter what color they are. It doesn't matter how big or fat or skinny they are. It doesn't, if you love somebody, you love that person. And, and, and that's where I came from. And I was like, I, I care about her. And, and if people have a problem with what they see on the outside, then, then that's their issue. And I, I learned to move on. Um, I also developed very close friendships with the people who remained friends, the people that didn't ostracize me or, or not include me anymore. Those people that remained friends with me, um, we became closer friends. And I'd much rather have a few very close friends than a dozen mediocre close friends. Um, but I know you know, from that side of it, again, um, there issue, race was always an issue, you know, how it was to be perceived and things like that. She was very, um, she used her blackness as a defense mechanism in many ways. Part of what she, I mean, she wore her hair out in a full Afro many times and she was boisterous and, and loud. Um, 
And for her, that was a protective method because she was going to be over the top and that would get people to back off. And, and, and she felt like in control of the situation. That's my psychological analysis, by the way. Um, she would disagree probably, but, um, <laughs> but my, email invite right now to the show. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, but I would, there, there's, I would just say to come back to that many people. Now we haven't been together in a number of years and, and there's many people in my current life that have no idea that I ever dated a, a black girl. And, 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 and the truth is she's half black, her mom's white her dad's black, you know, but, but, but she identified as black. Um, because she said, because of her hair and her skin color, that everyone else identified her as black. So I said, okay. Um, but it was an interesting experience, um, eye-opening from that regard. And now when I'm around people um, that don't know that part of my history, that don't know that I dated a black girl, um, they may make racial comments at times, you know, and say things because they, they, they don't know. And you know, but you know what I mean, Chris. I'm like, no, actually, I don't. You know, and I have no problem calling them out on it and saying I, I, I don't. You know, I don't follow that line of thinking. But there was a time in my life when I did. There was a very, a, 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 and I, and I started this tonight, Reggie. I started talking about my experience as a young kid going to an all-black school. Mm-hmm. I, I went to a school, an elementary school, where there were only five white kids in the entire school. And, and I had several experiences there that were very bad. And, 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 and I, I left there with a chip on my shoulder and it took me a number of years to get over that part of it. Um, but when I met this girl, um, she was a, a beautiful soul and I enjoyed running with her and she was a runner and we ran and we became friends and then we became, you know, a, a couple later on. But, um, it's so funny that that black never factored into it. It Mm -hmm. never, it never, you know, it didn't stop me. It didn't prevent me. Um, It was just, I I was so enamored with the person she was as an individual that I didn't see anything else with her. I I really did care about her. And the thing that gets me, I mean, that gets me the thing I wonder about it. Like if those people shut you out after years of friendships, my granddaddy said, if they kill their own folks, what do you think they're going to do to you? (laughs) So imagine how they would treat a person of color, if they shut you out and they liked you and you look like them because you betrayed them in some way. And then I don't know, it's just this, this continuous thing of what, what what is systemic oppression? What is systemic racism? It doesn't exist. I hate it so much. Mm-hmm. What you just described is kind of the, the, the I want to say it's the phalanges, like you know what I'm saying, like it's the edges of it. And it and it filters itself because I'm saying people will go back to their job and God forbid they got a position where they can make decisions about other people, right? Well, I'll tell you this, I, what I want to say here is though, I I felt the reason, if I had to, to, to make a determination, the reason that they quit hanging out is we made them feel uncomfortable. It wasn't that they were, they really didn't like her blacks or they had something against blacks or whatever. It was just, you could tell there was an uneasiness and an uncomfortableness around us. And they just, it, it was like we were invading their space 
and and oh, they do were. Very strange. Very strange. She was. That you wasn't. And they were well, bringing her into this. Place. Yeah, yeah. It's like Dog the Bounty Hunter. Remember when he was yelling at his family? Because uh, how you going to bring them around here? You know we be dropping saying this and saying that all the time, right? And, and, and it's just that thing. It's like that's what has to good on you for confronting people when they try to hit you with it. But that has to happen and it's got to get loud. I mean, like really loud. Because the number of people who fit within that group who do the subtle stuff that later translates into something way greater, it, it's way bigger than what we want to admit. It really and truly is. But let I mean, me say this now, I need to bring you in the conversation. I started this whole night by saying that I think that occurs on the other side as well. What I felt, what I experienced um, was equally as racist, was equally as as damaging as as one of only five white kids at a school mm -hmm. with over 300 black kids there, um, they had no problem being racist against me. They had no problem using their position power and because they outnumbered us, um, you know, being very, very negative towards us. A lot of terrible things happened. Um, and and what, what I drew from that was, is that that humans respond in certain ways. It's not whether they're black or white. If you put any group together and they are in the majority, they will effectively exercise unfair tactics against the minority, um, regardless of race or color. I don't think the black people, I don't think the white people own that and that black people are somehow above that. Because what I, my experience is that given the opportunity um, and being in a major, majority that the the black folks that I went to school with were were definitely against us because we were white for no other reason. We were in their space. We were in their school and they didn't like it and they didn't want us around. And they made that very clear on a daily basis. But but when I moved to Citrus County, this, you know, it's flipped the script. Now mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, there's only five black kids in our class, you know, and, and I, but then I identified with them. I knew how those kids felt. And that's when I changed kind of my perspective. I became like, like when I would see people say stuff, I'd be like, no, that's not cool because I knew exactly how they felt. I'd been there and I didn't want to be, I didn't want anybody to experience that anybody regardless, because I, I, I'm more you know, against you saying that black people are racist. I know plenty of them. <laughs> and, and the thing that I'll tell you, racism, the idea of being superior or having animosity or disdain for someone that don't look like you is not unique to white people. Right. The thing that's um, the, the difference is, and you've heard this, like I can sit around with my black friends and call y'all all kind of names and everything but a child of God. We don't own nothing. We have no wealth. We have no influence whatsoever. Like I don't have some connection to be able to get into like some political yada, yada, yada. Right. Where but you. If you get in with your friends, um, you might have some connections with somebody. And this ain't for everybody, but there, there, there's a, a greater position for your an animus to have power and action than it is for mine. Mine could be in, in a moment and temporary with an individual, such like it happened to you. And that was horrible. And people would be ashamed of themselves for doing it to you. And yet, on the other side, it becomes, it could be a lot different, right? Because we don't own nothing. Like, we don't have much. Our wealth is in entertainment and athletics, right? I mean, you got some black people that, that are uh, like starting to do things. So we don't have any major political influence. We don't have any like major societal influence other than pop culture. Whereas like the other side though, they can write laws. They they 
They are the workforce for the school system. They are the workforce for the police force. They are the workforce for, you know what I'm saying? So like if there's a gang of them or a few of them within that element, it has way more implications. But you're making an assumption that somehow just because I'm white that they'll accept me into that circle. And I can tell no, you I'm that I'm not automatically <laughs> accepted. I have to work my ass off to get anything. Um, and my connections are, are ones that I've made over a period of time, but I, I don't, I don't think being a white man growing up in this world, I can tell you that there's plenty of times that I felt I, I wasn't given any privilege. I was, I had things stacked against me left, right, and center. And, and, and I had the added bonus of having the expectation of success, the heavy weight placed on my shoulders that because everything's theoretically available to me and it's easier for me to get it, I have no excuse for failure that I, I, if I'm not a success, then I'm just a lazy POS. But, <coughs> but if, but if somebody has a lower expectation of somebody because of their ethnic background, that if they're not, they, they can use that as a victim mentality to say, well, they're not successful, but they had all this cards stacked against them, but you didn't have those cards. So you have no excuse for not being successful. And, and that's a big burden to bear. When you, when I, when I started my company, 80 hours a week working long nights and everything, you know, there was no, I felt like nobody was opening any doors for me. In fact, I had lots of doors closed to me. Um, and I was white. So, so what excuse do I have? What, what can I say? How, how come, how come those doors didn't open for me? So, and I, I get what you're saying. At least I think you do. And let me give you a reflection and say it. You're saying that black people do have some advantages to uh, open doors for them. I say that every everybody does. It, oh. the, the danger is is taking an entire race and generalizing for that. I mean, Jordan Peterson. Can I quote something, George, for a minute? Man, if you're going to quote Jordan Peterson, I'm down with it, man. You can just, okay. as far as I'm concerned, you can open up Twelve Rules for Life or Maps of Meeting, and you can just read for the rest of this. Now, let me just this this is this is a quote that he had about because uh, George told me uh, this we're going to talk about white privilege and I remember a, a speech that he gave and I and I went back and I pulled it up real quick but um, regarding white privilege he says I think the idea of white privilege is uh, absolutely reprehensible and not because white privilege uh, white people aren't privileged we all have sorts of privilege you should be grateful for your privileges and you should work hard to deserve them um, so he's not saying privilege doesn't exist. He's saying everybody has privileges on some level, some somewhere. He says the idea that you can target an ethnic group with a collective crime, regardless of the specific, uh, without specific, oh, let me start over. I'm sorry. The idea that you can target an ethnic group with a collective crime, regardless of the specific innocence or guilt of the constituents of that group, there's absolutely nothing that is more racist than that. Then stop saying black on black crime. Exactly. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So I get, it, it, here, here's what I'm going to hit you with. Uh, to that end, uh, we've talked about this. Now, I, do I, need to, I don't know if I would need to rehash it. I don't talk about a monetary privilege. I'm talking about the privilege of freedom, the privilege of the fact that white people lost their minds when their freedom was taken from them in COVID because they don't, and black folks just chilling. <laughs> this is the way we live. We, we joked about that. But it's the idea that there are some inalienable rights that you see within your grasp. And there's some that I don't even think that even remotely, I have an opportunity to entertain. And is it real? My, 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 am I distorted? 
I don't know, maybe. And yet I can tell you that being the first black person in any job, you either going to become a coon or you're going to become gone more times than not. If you don't assimilate to that culture, you're done. That's what happened to most cops. That's what happened to most black people in corrections. I've been in corrections department where black folks treated people of color worse than anybody in the building. And then later realized that they were doing it to just stay, save face with the other. And then there's the other impression around that too. Those doors that are open for us, then you're expected to do more. Or sorry, that's a lie. You're expected to do less. So you got to do more to overcome these impressions that you have. And God forbid you the first one. You better break your back so you can make way for the next one. If that happens more times than not, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's to equate the two, I'm not going to say one's worse than the other in the sense of uh, I'm not going to compare suffering. I can't do that. And yet I can tell you just from my own experiences, from the experiences I've been of people that I've been around that look like me, um, it's just, I don't care about white privilege. What I do care about is, there's people out there that don't like me because of what I look like. Yeah. And, and so, people out there who have influence and power who don't like me because of what I look at. And that influence and power is what scares me. It ain't you. It ain't George. It ain't anybody that's directly here in front of me that is on the same economic scale, maybe even lower scale. I don't necessarily trip about them except for when it's voting time. What I trip on is there are people who have authority, who have agency, who have industry, who don't like me. They think I'm- well, let, me tell you, let me tell you something. If I came to any of the cities, let me tell you, if I came to any of the cities that, uh, that we've, we've watched all the protesting in and, 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 and um, some of the cities that were maybe more violent and rioting and that sort of thing, I wouldn't have a say. I wouldn't have a say in those cities. Explain that to me. Well, the reason why is because um, I belong to a different political party. And I think that politics trumps like all of this stuff. That's why the National Organization for Women is not out for all women. They're out for women that believe their agenda. That's why, you know, classic example, Sarah Palin gets called the C word and, and there's now is not coming to be helpful to her, coming to her defense and saying, we don't talk about women like that in our, in our culture. How many people like uh, Candace Owens, uh, Shelby Steele, uh, Larry Elder, um, Tim Scott. I mean, the list goes on and on of, of black folks that are conservative. Man, they're called coons all day long. I mean, that's that's what they get caught. And so it, it's politics. It's money and politics and power. That's what it is, man. I I think that's demonstrably true. But and and I but and for me, my perception, what seems to be reality, perception is nine tenths reality, is that a significant number of people who have that political cachet, as it were, don't lean toward me. I mean, yeah, everybody wearing the, what is that thing called? <laughs> the Wakanda thing around their shoulders and getting oh them the media or not. I, whatever. I mean, and I, I don't mind that. I mean, whatever floats your boat, make mine sail. The thing for me is, um, at the end of the day, it, it literally, being black is uh, being a, the descendant of a slave. You are less than you are reviled around the world before this happened. Right. Like in any country you go to a black man, African or especially African-American considered to be dangerous, like angry, violent, sexual creatures. Right. Yeah. Rebecca said, look at how the first ladies treated. 
Look at how the previous first lady was treated. She was called a monkey. She was made fun of and mocked in every way, shape, or form. She has two doctorates, right? She ain't never posed naked. She ain't, she ain't never uh, like done anything crazy or outlandish other than literally being one of the most accomplished academic people you could imagine. And yet it, 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 she, she's the devil, right? She's for even doing school lunch. They, they targeted her for that, right? I mean, like, I don't, again, I, we we can agree. I, I could. I would. I know that we'd all love to live in this social utopia where it's nothing but rainbows and butterflies, and it's just oh, we fawn all over each other. And we, you know, the 1980s self esteem movement. Oh, you you're just wonderful. You're great. But that's, that's, just, that's dismissive, though. A lot, a lot of that's what we've got. That's why we got a lot of these people out in the the streets that that just have no sense of authority at all because they haven't got they haven't submitted to authority in their homes. They haven't submitted to authority at school. They they, they don't even know what it is. They've just been fawned all over. Like you're never wrong. We got people out there that scientifically their brains are not fully developed yet, driving public policy decisions because they're loud and they're making noise. It's just absolutely amazing to me. I want to read, uh, I want to read Peggy McIntosh. She was the one that uh, first wrote the article, white privilege, unpacking the invisible knapsack. I thought, I thought this was interesting. You know, it has the original article here was from 1989 and then updated in 2010. Here's some notes from her, um, you know, 20 years later. And so let me just read a couple of these notes I highlighted. First of all, my work is not about blame, shame, guilt, or whether one is a nice person. It's about observing, realizing, thinking systemically and personally. It's about seeing privilege, the upside of oppression and discrimination, right? So if there's oppression and discrimination, then there's someone that's benefiting from that. And that's, yeah, what, yeah, she's, yeah, yeah, I got yeah, that's what she's referring to as the upside. Uh, it's about unearned advantage, which can also be described as exemption from discrimination. So like what that. that tells me as I think through that, one of my initial reactions to that is, uh, well, isn't this what we want for everyone? Yeah, yeah this, this is what we want for everyone. It's not something for me as a white person to virtue signal and be like, yeah, I, I want to acknowledge this and I want to admit it and, and then just go on about my business uh, acting like I've now done something. I've done squat. Mm. What you ought to be doing is saying, okay, if this is reality, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to come alongside my brothers and sisters who don't have this and we're going we're gonna to work together to try to make sure that everyone experiences what we're labeling as white privilege. Everyone. But but here's the thing: do do you do you believe that 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 uh, kind of construct exists? The yin and the yang that somebody's oppressed and somebody's lifted up by that oppression. Do, I mean, I'm not asking you. I'm asking: Do you believe that the majority of white Christians believe that that exists? Uh, I believe. I think you're going to like this uh, uh, answer here, Reggie. I'm not. I'm not dodging you. I believe, and I think small talk has taught me this is that that's not even on the radar screen for most white folks. They don't even have to, 
because they don't even have to think about it. Okay. I that out. What? I, I told you, I'm sitting here talking about all this oppression of the African-American boys in the, in the Twin Cities. And I'm telling my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law, there's two extremely lily white folks from uh, Green Bay. And they look at me like, what the hell is this man talking about? Would you please just stop? Nobody cares about that. And I realized in that moment, white folks don't talk about us the way we talk about y'all. We no, don't have your concerns until something pop off on the news. But here's the, yeah, here's, the okay, here, here's the thing, though. You will not successfully convince people of it by telling them things like uh, like Van Jones. And I'm going to give him a little bit of a pass on this because he was talking about woke people who vote for uh, Hillary Clinton. But you can't win this by saying white people have a virus. It's it's you know, it's it's in there. It's in everyone. Like who, what company would ever say, OK, here's here's what we're going to do. Here's our marketing strategy. We're going to make everyone feel like crap we're gonna we are going to uh, single out a, a specific group of people a large group of people and we are going to try to ram down their throats any sort of idea especially one that basically says you are a criminal and you are contributing to the the, the degradation of society that's not a good marketing approach that is not good and we'll never get there because what happens is we say that we, we keep on hearing all this. We got to change hearts and minds. We have to change hearts and minds. And I'm going to keep on saying that that happens in the home. I want everyone that's listening right now to imagine an iceberg and the top of it you can see. And then there's that water line and there's 90 percent of it that you cannot. And we'll say that a person's actions are what you can see It's the tip of the iceberg and below that waterline, what you cannot see is what's going on in someone's mind. It's their their thoughts, their feelings. And at the very bottom of that iceberg is their principles, their values, the things, their, their, their life mottos, right? That sort of stuff. It's that deep down type of stuff that parents are instilling in their children. If you're a parent, your job is to instill your attitudes and beliefs into your child. You should do that automatically because those are the things that you believe are important. You believe that these are the things, these are the ideals and principles that contribute to human thriving. And here's your child and you love your child and you want them to thrive. So you try to impart that stuff to your children. I'm at a meeting tonight, a community meeting. And I hear um, uh, a black pastor say, well, at some point with our, our young men in particular in the black community, we have to have that conversation with with our black sons and tell them, hey, be on guard, be on guard. Right. And like I said on the last episode, I, I can't fault them for that. I had that same conversation with my nephew uh, when he was here and, and uh, he's biracial, which means he's black in America. I had that same conversation. But what I'm saying is. How will the tide ever turn? How will we ever have the hearts and minds changed while when they're in their formative years, the conversations in our homes are watch out for people of other races. It happens in white homes. It happens in black homes. And that's the thing right there to me that in my mind, it, it we can change all the laws in the world. And I want to, I'm, I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to make a list. I'm going to put them all down. Probably could just Google this really easily of all the legislation that has been passed over the years. 
to um, empower minorities, not just black, but, but minorities and women and to try to bring about equality through the legislative process. How much blood has been spilt uh, at places called Bull Run and Gettysburg and whatnot for, for this? There has, our society has this huge, huge investment in, in this. But at the end of the day, it comes down to hearts and minds. People forget the history and they just care about what's happening in their kitchen. And if as long as in their kitchen, the conversation is watch out for the cops, watch out for white people, watch out for black people, watch out for the immigrants. I'll tell you who I think we got something to learn from is people with disabilities. Because some of those people, Chris, you think about the nonprofit. I'm not going to mention that you're a board member of. Here are some of the people who are truly at an incredible disadvantage if we're talking about advantages and disadvantages in this world that are so incredibly uh, broken and uh, still, man, when I'm down there, man, or I'm, I'm around, uh, man, these are some of the happiest people, uh, joyful people we've, I've ever seen. Well, I, the hearts and mind thing, there's no incentive to change. People change well, change used to come about through discomfort, right? There's something that got to come along and spoil your current existence in order for you to see that there's a need, or at least form some ambivalence around the idea of making a change. And there's nothing for a significant number of people in this country that are in a, a in the dominant culture, whatever that is. There's no incentive to change, right? There's nothing to make them uncomfortable except for like stuff where you know every once in a while you got a, a riot, or I mean not not a riot, but you got a rally, you got some stuff that's put out there and things of that nature. And I'm the first person to say us bashing white people when they come to help ain't going to help us. Like, I mean, that's like if, if I show up at your house and I'm like, George, I'm here to help you. I'll do whatever I can. You like uh, complain about everything I give you. You know what? Uh, nah, you put that over there the wrong way. No, you didn't turn that screw right. Well, you know, you should have done that last time anyway. I'm probably not going to leave. Right. So this, it's it's in a self-destructive to try to like hold the people who stand in front of you saying they want to help to the standard you wish the, the folks that would never touch you were held to, right? So that's stupid. I'll just say it flat out. And at the same time, there's really no incentive other than embarrassment right now for a lot of people in the government to make any kind of changes in their heart. Forget the policies. I told you this two episodes ago. You asked me what, what, what laws, what policies will work? My son gave me a beautiful argument. He said, instead of adding policies, take some away. Yes. And so, and then he, I mean, he ran on his list of them too. I won't put him out there on blast. That's my boy. But, uh, and I was like, wow, he actually defeated me in an argument. Right. I mean, like, I, I was blown away. It's not that hard, Reggie. I do it here every, uh, Tuesday and Thursday at 8 p.m. I don't know what your listeners telling you, but I know what your listeners telling me. But anyway, back to what I'm saying. Don't, don't cut me off here, please. In this sense, if you can't, there's no incentive for the, the, the dominant culture to change. Except for right now, there's a little bit, and it is that embarrassment, right? You want to thumb your nose at Syria? You want to thumb your nose at this person, at that country, at this one? Them people marching for us now. Same thing happened with, in the 60s with the civil, civil rights movement. Same thing happened for Gandhi. Gandhi's movement inside of his country, it had 
it bought some support, but it became real support and real change when it got national coverage. I mean, I should say international coverage. Well, with the, in the 60s, Martin Luther King won the Nobel Peace Prize, man. There's people in London, just like now, criticizing America. There's people in Germany criticizing America. There's people in all over the world criticizing America for them hoses and them dogs and everything else, right? That's what led to, to the change. I won't, I mean, I won't completely diminish the idea that maybe some people saw it was right to do that, but more so, the biggest motivator was the discomfort of the embarrassment of being a, a shame on the national stage. And right now, we are a shame on the national stage. That's why old Cheeto up there quoting Don, I mean, <laughs> evoking George's name. I'm like, dude, what in God? I, there's no connection to what you just said. But he doing anything to pander and buy and make it seem as though it's not X, Y, and T. But yet then he goes and he, I, I don't even know if he knows he did this. He plans on the site of the worst, one of the worst massacres of African-American people in the country. So who knows what's going on, dog? Can you, can you help me understand? There's no incentive. Other than Barry. Can you tell me? Can, okay, I got two questions here. When you say the dominant culture, what do you mean when you say that? I don't know. Define it for yourself. People who make decisions. Okay. People who make decisions. Okay. Yep. Who can define so power. When you say the dominant culture, what you're saying to me is the, um, the, the, the racial group that has the most people, right. which would be white. Again, that's your interpretation. I said the dominant. Well, I'm not asking you. It's not like you're not in the room. That's why I'm asking you. Well, what are you calling? I just want anybody, to understand. Anybody that's in a position to influence, make laws, have power, to actually that has wealth, that has like an investment, that has okay. anything like that. That's the dominant culture. I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to sit and define it for you. We, we figure out who in it. Dude, all I'm doing is asking you to just clarify what you're saying. I don't know what you're saying. I mean, you don't have to be defensive. I'm just asking what you're saying. Oh, because I when, I, when I look at the culture, I don't see any politicians that are pandering to, you know, white people. I don't see that happening. I don't see that. Not bad. I, I don't see that. That's why I'm, I'm like looking for an example of where. Where does that happen? Like I'll, I'll turn on the television and I'll see the. What you were talking about a little bit ago, the scarfs and this and that and the other thing. I don't ever see uh, a movement that's pandering toward the the you know the dominant culture, the 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 you know, the, the people apparently with all the, the power. Like I don't see that happening. What's MAGA? Uh, what's that? What's what's MAGA then? Well, um, I, th I think that as he's articulated, I mean, we have to ask him, but I think the way he's articulated is that other countries have gotten over on us all these years uh, in terms of trade imbalances and um, you know, payments to the UN and this, and like they have no, no respect at all. Our manufacturing went elsewhere. The economy was, was tanking. Uh, Barack Obama told us we'd never see 3% uh, growth ever again, like all these sorts of things. And he came along and said, no, we're going to make America great again. We're going to be respected in the world. We're not going to be paying China all the time. We're not going to do this. We're going to bring back manufacturing to our country. I mean, that's what he said it was. I mean, I know that other people interpret that differently, but that's what he said it is. 
And then the, then the alt-right infiltrated it and turned it into a white nationalist thing to a degree, at least for that faction. And then a lot of people bought into it. And then the yeah, idea yeah, of yeah. Make America Free yeah, that's been created under, under his term, is there? Well, I, I, I was talking over you, Reggie. What was that? I said the alt-right got into the game, and then they turned it into a white nationalist movement, at least for a faction of people within MAGA, right? And then um, the idea of like making America great, well, that's a... a that is pandering because a lot of those jobs didn't just go to China. They became extinct because of technology. I mean, not really exaggerating about that. And then mix in with that, um, the idea of us like getting some kind of power imbalance, and uh, leveling the playing field, as it were. That ain't leveling the playing field for every American, though. And a lot of the comments, a lot of the statements and stuff within that is feeding toward a certain group of people, a disenfranchised group of white folks who are tired of suffering who are tired of having their jobs pulled from them. They they, they, they made a deal with the, with the country. I work hard and I put in a day's work and then all of a sudden that got ripped from underneath them. And yet we believe that somehow that somehow changed. I mean, like things are getting better, but yet we went through a pandemic and in that people, what were the 20 plus million people, almost depression level unemployment? But the 41 million went up. So you tell me how that, you know what I'm saying, how there's a correlation or connection at all between- Did you say the stock market's going up, Reggie? I said it was. It's still, I think it still is, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what, 40% of the stock. We've got yeah. back, uh, at least um, 50% of what we've lost so far. So the stock market is going up. I mean, that's I optimism. That's optimism, whether it's regard, whether it's uh, irrational or not. It's probably irrational to some degree. Yeah, so, but it, so I'm saying that it's just pandering. There's a lot of people, everybody, I wouldn't tell you everybody, that's an absolute, a lot of people go out and they pander to whatever they think gonna get them to where they need to be. But at the end of the day, they're gonna serve themselves in the end, right? I don't mind what, the, what uh, Nancy Pelosi and them doing. I mean, I'm sure she, somebody joked and said, I think it was you who said she probably would have to have knee construction, knee reconstruction after. Yeah, that was me. But you know what, at right now, there's an incentive for the the dominant culture to do something different. So I ain't gonna look. I ain't gonna fault it. I'm gonna take it for what it is and ride that wave till it runs out. And hopefully, it's a it's a pretty steep wave it'll ride for a long. I guess uh, I'm just so cynical when it comes to these uh, when it comes to the politicians that I just don't. I have no reason to think that they're genuine. I I think that it's just photo op after photo op after photo op and 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 get in line with what. The, the dominant culture is, I'm, I will, I'll sum up the dominant culture right now is, um, uh, well, let me put it to you this way. You and I have, have agreed for uh, probably the whole time we've ever been friends, but certainly recently since we've decided to do this show together. Uh, I could get myself in trouble that I can't get out of on this podcast much quickly uh quicker and easily than than what you could have we not agreed on that yeah for sure yeah, yeah. Watch yourself. <laughs> i said you better watch yourself yeah looking. yeah so if if one little misstep one little one little honest error uh that, that comes out verbally um that's completely innocent, but I'm just trying to sort through something because I'm trying to figure it out. But in the process of figuring it out, you know, I didn't articulate the question right or something like that. I will be cannibalized by everyone on social media. I will. And this gets back to sort of something I was thinking about with uh, with Chris earlier when he was talking is that uh, 
if Chris wasn't successful, if I wasn't successful, the, you have to one, we would have to 100% own that. And I, I, I'm fine with that. Chris is probably fine with that as well. Um, society's ills right now are laid at the feet predominantly of people who look like me and Chris. That's, that's Keep going there. I ain't mad at you. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's, that's like the message that I'm getting, whether it's, you know, toxic masculinity, right? Cause you're a male, the, you know, the, the patriarchy, the people who started this whole uh, experiment here called founding fathers look like me. It was people that look like me who created this whole system and we created it for ourselves. And, I mean, go go right on down the line of all of the ills of society right now, and they're laid at the feet of people who look like me, and uh, and people who look like me are killing themselves at a higher rate than anyone else, any other demographic. And uh, when folks shoot up uh, movie theaters and all the rest of it, they generally look like me. Yeah, you ain't got to look too far for the suspect. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so what I'm telling you is, and this is one of the things I love about doing this podcast because long after I leave the earth, that they'll still be for my children and grandchildren, great great grandchildren. Uh, there will be record of me saying this: there is a crap show that's on the way. It's coming, folks. I'm here to tell you. You will. Oh, let me go there. Let me go there. You can't say it. I can't. I, think I, I appreciate it. Because we've had this discussion before. And I remember I texted you, this was a while ago, and I said, um, white boys are under attack. Right? You remember that? Oh, yeah. And I know... I can tell you how good that does my heart, man, for you to... For, for my brother, a black man, to, to, to acknowledge that, that I'm not crazy when I'm saying that, because I don't hear anyone else saying it. Well, I, there's a, I, mean, I don't know. I ain't the only one. I can't be. And yet, here's what I mean. And so... I don't care about losing my black card on this one. I'll just go ahead and ride with it. Um, every ill and every problem in the world, in Western society for sure, all over the world, is laid at the feet of white men. And maybe justifiably so. I won't say it ain't. I mean, literally, who knows? I ain't in the rooms making them decisions. I can tell you, America, we are some violent people. Like we, and we, we're some colonizers like a son of a gun. We, we need to be, have our foot in everybody's pot. And yet there's a generation of young men sitting out there that are seeing this and they're seeing their daddies being vilified and, and, and just hated and crapped on. And, and then they see the dad and I'm sure their dad is having these subtle conversations, not intentional, not instilling like some hate in them, but what they sharing with them and they see their daddy's pain, that, that, that resonates with them. And you talked about formative years, right? We're going to have, I would say, a full generation of teenage boys right now that are someday going to grow to be part of uh, the dominant culture, as it were, right? If, if white people own everything and white people got all the good jobs, them same boys who watch their daddy be crapped on for making a mistake or like having some empathy at some point, but it, it got misguided or misdirected, they're going to hold a lot of resentment toward everybody else that don't look like them. And maybe rightfully so. I don't know. So I, that's why when you talk about this whole idea of hearts and mind, that's where I'm at. I don't care about privilege. I mean, I can sit here and define it for you. I can give you multiple reasons. But what I care about is the human being. And I think human beings are not incentivized to care about each other until it's something that's detrimental to them. Well, 
them young boys, them young white boys is watching their daddy being made to be the devil. They gonna let's see what they do <laughs> when they get of age. I yeah. don't think they're gonna be as forgiving as say the current generation, right? I don't, I don't think they're gonna be as, as as polite and as politically correct because there's no way you couldn't hold resentment. If Jake Jake has watched me be persecuted, and I know he can't stand anybody that did that to me. I'd imagine a generation of young white boys that have been watched their daddies be blamed for everything. And I won't say that, that it's wrong or right. I mean, like it's justified to do that. I can just tell you what the repercussion is going to be. There's going to be a whole generation of young kids that grow up and we ain't going to have that division. You think we got division now? It's going to be pretty damn intense by the time they get old because they're under attack. And that sounds crazy to think that white folks are under attack. I know it does. I'm sure it does. And yet, if you're every day being told that you're the problem, that you're the issue, that you're, and, and there's never relief, right? Except for when you get around your own people, and then there's definitely relief. But then that turns into a need to like start um, marginalizing and, and like really victimizing the other side to gain that sense of power right back, right? So we, we, we're breeding the dissension in that generation of young white boys, and we don't even know it. And it, it, what it's doing, it's really sowing some seeds of anger because what those what those young boys are watching is they're watching, regardless of what society is saying saying about their fathers, they're seeing the facts, and the facts are that their fathers are getting up, and they're putting in the hours and working and supporting their families as best as they can, and um, and. And that's what they're watching. Yeah, their father spending time with them and just trying to make it and, and all the rest of it. And then they hear that not only is their father the root cause of all the problems, but their mama Karen. <laughs> but well, but yeah. But, but he also has privilege at the same time. And then and then it's like, well, wait a minute. None of that adds up. That doesn't that doesn't make sense. That does not make sense to a child, right? And so. Uh, it, there's a there's a storm brewing, folks. There's a storm brewing. I'm here to tell you. You heard it here first. You better. You, you better. You better how, can we, how can we deal with that storm? Well, you got to tell me how to reach those people. I just said those people. <laughs> I can't believe I just said that out loud. You well, got to tell me how to reach the people who are being. Um, who are being targeted, who are being victimized. That 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 well, you call a white guy who when he go to work, he come home with a with dirt under his nails, back sore, feeling like hey, ain't nobody gave me nothing. And yet everybody telling him that he's the problem. How do we reach them? Help me understand that. So I got I got it now. My own ideas, but go ahead, please. Three words. I used I to be the guy that ran this show. Yeah, you did, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> Two things on that. Um, in line with what you guys are saying, I, I, I look at it as like from a psychological perspective. You have you have um, a, a, say a couple, and the husband is constantly accusing the wife of cheating. Now she's not cheated once, but he's constantly accusing her of cheating. What is he doing? He is categorically driving her to cheat because the human condition says if I'm going to be accused of it. I may as well do it. Mm -hmm. And at some point she's going to, she's going to cheat. 
And that's what happens if he constantly accuses her of it and she's innocent. Um, it's just a, it's a reaction that people will fall into because they, they, they get tired of being accused of something that they haven't done. And so they figure if I'm going to be accused of it, I may as well be guilty of it. And, they, and that will drop their guard. The second thing that I want to address is, is follow the money. Rebecca put something up there. Those in political power are beneficiaries of, of divisiveness. And I, I think that is absolutely 100% accurate. I think if you start to look at who benefits from, from, from us, meaning black and whites, being torn apart, somebody is benefiting. Somebody is profiting from that. And, and if you follow the money, you'll see that those folks have no interest in making this go away. Well, I agree with that. So, so as much as I live my life and I live my life daily without any consideration of, of race or, or, or gender or anything like that, I, it doesn't fall into my daily, daily mentality of, of, oh, I don't like black people or white, this is this. And, but yet I'm constantly being told, like you said, well, you're the problem because you're a racist. You have white privilege. And I'm saying, where's my white privilege? And what, and what evidence you have that I'm racist? What, tell me what I've done that's racist. Well, you're just part of that group. You can't even see. You don't even know what you're doing. But the reality is- yeah, I'm not laughing at you. I'm just thinking that. Just to hear that, like, verbalize. Y'all showing some bravery tonight, you two. I don't care. You are. You're showing some bravery. I'm proud of you. Yeah, I'm I want they, somebody to show me. Time on small talk, if you disagree- Come on on here, and we will we will debate this. I have no problem. Don't catch me in a corner at church. Don't catch me in a corner at a store, you know, down at the ball field wanting to talk about it. No, we're going to talk about it right here in front of the whole world. That's that's uh, Because you know what? I think part of the solution is having honest conversations like what we are ha having tonight. That's what's going to solve this sort of thing. So I I'm going to tell you right now, to have honest conversation like this, uh, Reggie, this is really helpful because I watch people trying to express themselves through memes and whatnot, and they're taking a lot of grief for that. You know, if it's not politically correct, and and sometimes, you know, most of the time, Reggie, I'm just like, I wouldn't have posted that. <laughs> you know, I don't, dude, come on. And and uh, it, I, I sort of feel like, well, I've got the luxury of having a show on Facebook. What well, anybody could do this. Anybody can do this, right? So whatever I have to say, I'm just saying it right here with you all, and the world can see it. So if someone doesn't like it, well, we can have a conversation. We're going to be right here. Well, George, and here's here's my feeling on this and why I, I love coming on your show. I believe that the more we have this conversation, that if there were more people that would join this conversation, that we would start to find out that we actually aren't as different as we as we're decided to be. We would yeah. start to realize that we are much closer in agreement to the same philosophies, principles, beliefs than, than they tell us we are. They being Reggie and I are so close. <laughs> we're we're a lot closer than what people think we are. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, hey man, I don't want to get you in trouble, Reggie, but we're we uh, are. you don't get me in trouble because I'm honest. I don't I don't bite my tongue. Okay, but, but, but you know what we used to uh we, we we're gonna wrap this up but yeah we need to I gotta call my baby. Yeah I can see it on your face Reggie you're tired man it's been a long day. Yeah. Uh, here's here's one of my concerns is that uh, what do we have to coalesce around as a society to build bonds of unity right this country was founded on the uh, 
on the Judeo-Christian ethic. So much so, so powerful that even uh, black Americans were in slavery and they were still Christians. Like, they were made to be, though. They were made to be. Okay, but but even when they had the option afterwards, the you know the 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 black community still is a very robust Christian uh, base of Christianity, and um, and so religion has been under assault, right? So we don't coalesce around that uh, anymore. Uh, we would coalesce around our national symbols, you know, the patriotism, that sort of thing. We don't do that anymore. We we you know that's. That would seem ridiculous. There's there's schools that won't even say the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, because for, for whatever reason. So we're not going to coalesce around that. We're not going to coalesce around religion. It's like, what are we coalescing around? What's the what ties us all together? And I got to tell you right now, I don't know what that is. I really don't know what it is. Social media. <laughs> In a yeah, bad way. And that's that is ripping us. That's ripping us apart. I talked over you, Reggie. What'd you say? I said social media in a bad way. We we own it. It ain't bringing us together, but at least we all own there. I mean, literally, it's like it's just horrible, man. I mean, I, I I'm tired. You you can tell. I mean, I've been at it. Yeah. And you know, I've been going for a while, but don't shed a tear for me. <laughs> I feel like I cut Chris off early, and I love listening to Chris because Chris more reasonable than you. Hey, Chris, final word. Now, don't be going on a seven-minute tangent here. Now, final word, Chris. What do you have to say? Yes. Final word is is I'll I'll say what I said in one of our earlier conversations. It's this kind of dialogue that is the answer. If we you say what's the answer? What's the answer? To me, it's getting people to have civil discussion that can listen to each other's perspective and each other's position. What happens too often is I see people shutting people down. They don't want to hear what they have to say. There's too much confirmation bias going on. People that don't do their research, they see something on, on a meme or on, on Facebook and, it's and, and, and they just go with it. And they, they need people have a responsibility to do their research and find it out and make sure what they're saying is accurate. And I think many times you'll find that what you believe may not be accurate. And that's the, the first step in changing your perspective and seeing how somebody else, I can't tell you what it's like to be Reggie. Reggie cannot tell you what it's like to be me. And, 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 but what we can do is, is have some sort of understanding of each other's positions. Um, but, but it has to be a two way street. Well, uh, a, a young girl on social media told uh, my daughter, um, I don't know. I don't think she told her necessarily, but sort of just put out the blanket statement. Uh, she's a black girl and said, uh, white people need to shut up. You're going to listen to us now. We don't have to listen to you. And so um, it's just not, it's not the right approach. No. It's just, that's just not going to do it. So, here we are every Tuesday and Thursday, 8 p.m., proving former uh, Attorney General Eric Holder wrong that we are not a nation of cowards when it comes to the discussion of race. We are willing to have it. How do you like that, Reggie? We'll do something with it. <laughs> All, right. All right. Hey, thank you guys for joining me tonight. Thank you, Chris, for uh, jumping in there for – 20, 30 minutes while uh, Reggie was uh, working his way into the conversation. And, uh, hey, thank you so much. Uh, I see that Carrie joined us in the, late in the conversation and, and Chuck and Glenn and, and, and Chris. And so many people are, are uh, watching, and, uh, and that's important to us because 
hey, this is like episode number 20, and uh, in 20 episodes, we've contributed more good to the world than The View ever has. So there you go. There you have it. All right, everyone have a great weekend, and we'll be back right here at 8 o'clock on Tuesday for another episode of Small Talk. In the meantime, go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, download it, subscribe, give us a five-star rating, tell other people about it, watch us on YouTube, uh, whatever it takes. Uh, we need more of these conversations. I hope that you all will have some conversations uh, in your own homes and, and communities as well. Uh, and, and to sit and say, we're going to have an honest conversation doesn't mean that uh, the other person has to agree with everything you say. All right. So take that to heart. Just be honest. Just talk about it. It's fine. Small talk. No big whoop. All right. See you next week. <laughs>